0: And welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Chris Sims. And once again, we are digging deeper into the archives of some older episodes before this podcast had a reboot. Uh, This episode features Bill White, Alexandra Jones, and Jordan Reese. And uh, they joined the show to talk about the Society of Black Archaeologists, Public Archaeology, Racism, and Overcoming Adversity. Dr. Jones also has some stellar advice for anybody trying to make it in archaeology. This episode continues a uh, recurring theme that we have explored in Go Dig a Hole on how to start a career in archaeology and how to sustain one. So it's full of some really good advice. I uh, hope you all enjoy it. If you dig what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of the contributions make a huge, huge difference. We're able to uh, bring out more content, um, spread the word, go to uh, various events, and we are now going back through the, uh, the backlog of all the episodes that have been released, and we're providing transcripts for the hearing impaired. So uh, we're constantly working on expanding the mission of Go Dig a Hole, and uh, all of your help is super appreciated. And of course, stay tuned for more new episodes of the Go Dig a Hole podcast with the entire crew, myself, Katie, Tia, and Kirsten. Hey, I've got a quick editorial note before we get started. I've been having some issues with my uh, plugins that I'm using to record Skype audio during the interview. So if you hear the audio kind of pan back and forth between sounding like it's uh, coming through a tin can and sounding like uh, you know a normal Skype call, uh, you know, just bear with me and be patient. I'm trying to sort it out, but. If any of our listeners have any uh, audio editing expertise or happen to be audio engineers, uh, shoot me an email at Christopher at GoDigAHole.com. And uh, I'd love any advice you might have. Here we go with the show. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Sims, and today I've got some special guests with me. I've got Bill White from Arizona. Bill, how's it going? Pretty good. And I've got Alex Jones in D.C. Alex, how's it going? Pretty great. And I've also got Jordan Reese. Jordan, are you in Florida still or are you uh, back in North Carolina?
1: I'm in Florida still. My family moved down here in June, so I'm here to stay.
0: Oh, nice. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about... A few things uh, we're gonna start off with uh, covering the Society for black archaeologists and um, I know that uh, Alex and Bill you're both you're both uh, members of it and Alex you have a big part and uh, when I was talking to Bill about this a few weeks ago to preface the discussion I had asked him you know if he would recommend the Society of black archaeologists to any uh, black undergrads. And he said, absolutely. And there were a few points and Bill, uh, do you want to lead us off with, with what you said? Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to rehash what you said. I'll just let you say it in your own words.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, no one's better at saying my own words than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, it was, um, first it was awesome to hear that, uh, uh, you, that other people were, the word about the Society of Black Archaeologists was getting around. Um, I, I can't remember why exactly the two leaders, uh, Justin Dunavant and Ayana Flewellen, they started the, the organization a few years ago, I think maybe uh, four years ago, um, because they realized that there was not a society really for black archaeologists. Um, And most of the people who are members are members of the Society for Historical Archaeology. But that doesn't mean that there's not other black archaeologists that do prehistoric archaeology or archaeology elsewhere. It just means that that kind of came from historical archaeology community. And that's kind of where it's existed since then. So So, uh, one of the main platforms is to help train uh, the next generation of black archaeologists. And to increase the number of black archaeologists around the world, specifically in the United States, in order to kind of combat what we've seen as really kind of like a, a uniracial structure in archaeology. So
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, uh, I, uh, there's a great um, blog post I read a few years ago by uh, Doug Rocks McQueen who r- writes for uh, Doug's Archaeology. And he has a post that says archaeologists are the whitest scientists in the world. And he had some statistics, and it was like insane how how like uniracial the whole uh, field of archaeology was. So a group like the Society of Black Archaeologists, you know, that really kind of cuts into that uh, a little bit. And you know, we actually contribute to the overall field just by having a different perspective. So your question before about whether I would recommend uh, or the advice I would have for uh, an African-American undergrad that wants to do archaeology. You know, one of the things that uh, – so, you know, just in my own personal uh, background, coming from the West and living in places that there weren't really that many African-Americans – and then doing cultural resources for so long, I can't say that I've seen really overt discrimination in cultural resources or in anthropology departments. I mean, I'm from Idaho, so you know, I I have seen that kind of stuff before. But uh, um, I, as far as archaeology goes, I have not seen you know strong anti-minority racism uh, in cultural resource management, which is actually pretty commendable considering how many companies and how many places I've worked for, uh, that there wouldn't be that, that kind of stuff going on. But, uh, just the, um, just the simple fact of having an archeologist that's not white. Um, it, it puts, uh, it, it has a certain effect on your, your peers and your others. You'd never really know if, uh, they would be saying racist stuff or doing racist stuff. If you weren't there, uh, you don't, you'll never really know. Like, if your presence actually was diminishing discrimination or they just simply didn't want to be seen like jerks. They didn't, didn't want to be seen as jerks with yeah. you right there. Right. There was someone to actually call it out. Um, but just your simple presence changes the perspective of archaeologists for a long time. Archaeologists were only men. And it, that, that was just what ma- male explorers did went around the world, digging this stuff up. And the archaeology that came out of that was heavily biased towards man, the hunter man doing all this stuff. And then women just taking care of, uh, children.
0: Yeah. The present- oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like archaeology's history. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've taken a lot of courses in this and, and Jordan, uh, if you haven't already, I'm sure you're, you're about to embark on this, but the, the history of archeology span as a discipline is kind of shameful. Like, uh, the, the history of theoretical uh perspectives and all that and the history of the work itself was done by very privileged uh you know it was kind of a hobby of the idle wealthy and you know it was a bunch of rich white dudes running around with their whole caravan of people you know carrying all the gear and setting up their little canvas tent and stuff like that and so it was a very privileged field from the start and you know there's I feel like there's still a, quite a few hangovers from that, um, you know, that, you know, programs like the Society of Black Archaeologists. And um, I was just on a podcast with um, a, a group of, of queer archaeologists. And so, you know, we've come a long way as a field, but we also have so much further to go.
1: And this is Alex. Um, just just thinking about um, I think we, we, there's an age gap between all of us, just in this discussion in itself. So I was in graduate school 13 years ago, uh, um, starting out. And I kind of was stuck in between that generation of, we have a lot of Black archaeologists who recent PhDs, um, and then there were very few in graduate school. Um, So when I got to graduate school, needed help, needed assistance, I reached out and didn't have anybody, um, mostly because everybody was brand new. They were just into their positions. Um, they were swamped, trying to get someone to assist somebody who wasn't even and their direct student was dead on near impossible. And I just remember questioning whether I didn't want it to be in this field, and whether or not I would even be able to survive or make an impact because. I had nobody to go to. I had nobody to talk to about some of my um, issues of being a woman of color in this field. And then as I continued in the field, I had more encounters than a little bit. I went to a conference Uh, my second year of graduate school and was sitting at the bar like most of us do, having conversations after um, sessions. And somebody jokingly told me um, that I was a token and that I should. Yeah, that I should know that I was a token doing research with a particular person and I was doing it. And just as long as I knew that, that I would be okay. (laughs) I had a situation, uh, I would say three years after that, where I literally sat in an archaeologist's office. They asked me to come in talk to them. They wanted my advice. Um, they wanted me to suggest an archaeology um, under um, excuse me graduate student who could work on an African American site. However, they didn't want an African American. <laughs> what? So these are the types of conversations that I think a lot of people don't realize our head. Um, we we don't go out and publicize it. We don't talk about about it. But these are some of the things that you know, African-American archaeologists or aspiring archaeologists are actually dealing with that. Um, and this isn't far past. You're talking things that happened about five, six years ago, um, that are crazy. And so for me, I, I think the Society of Black Archaeologists is needed. Um, you, you need somebody to kind of help you navigate through that. Uh, when those sort of situations come up, what do you do? Yeah. How do you handle it? I think I've um, and anybody who knows me, um, I've made a super point. Every time I'm at a conference, if I see and i I see an African American student, I go up to him immediately, like, I've never seen you. Who are you? I'm Dr. Jones. Hi, this is my organization. If you need anything, call me. If you got any questions, call me. I'll this at the First Society for Black Archaeologists Meeting. I never want another person to go through what I had to go through by myself on my own. It's not fair. Everybody else in this field has a mentor, has somebody they can go to and confide in. And there, there's a big gap of us who didn't have that, who had to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps, be strong enough, withstand it, not cower down, um, and kind of keep it going. I mean, I, I had a professor who came to me later and was like, yeah, I didn't think you'd last in
2: this. What? I mean, <laughs> somebody-
1: Sure, an archaeologist today, but you sufficiently surprised me. Like you, you really have done a lot, and then gave me a substantial donation to my company um, as a result of it. So, it, I, I just don't think everybody is kind of aware of what people are still dealing with within the field and how we still have older people. And it's not the younger because we have a lot of younger, progressive, great. A lot of my colleagues are awesome. Um, I love them. <laughs> yeah. um, but I still don't think people recognize that we're still dealing with these issues, which is why I think the SHA has moved towards the uh, concept of how do we look at a non racist society for historical archaeologists. And that's um, mostly because people just don't realize things are, are, are still occurring, still, are still happening to folks in this field, and that you still have people who are dictating. What students are getting opportunities, what research dollars are going to people, um, who still are carrying some of these biases and some of these ideas, because everybody I've mentioned in this conversation, who's made comments, still very much is very active in the field.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about the deck being stacked against you from the very start. And uh, you know, I'm sure some of these people were in their minds well-intentioned, but just the fact that they're perpetuating um and an 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 unequal system it, and just saying oh that's just the way it is stuff like that it you know that sucks and that's not how you build an inclusive archaeology and that's not how you democratize the past or material remains of the past so i think it's awesome that you know, y- y'all are working on this.
2: Yeah, no, it's a big thing. Alex is right. The age thing is a big thing too. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of intersectionality there with, you know, Alex talking about you know, not only differences in, in race, but also with age and also um sexism and I'm sure there's also a lot of class issues, you know, wrapped up in all that as well.
2: Exactly. Well my um I mean, personally, because I worked in cultural resources for so long, uh, it's more I mean, I don't really know how to describe it. It's different than um a nonprofit or uh, college work in that making money is the most important thing. <laughs> I mean yeah. it's 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 bad, it's bad to say it out loud, but uh, yeah, those guys care a lot more about money than they do about uh, discriminating. And if they think that uh, you know, hiring a woman or I mean most companies, at least in Arizona, Washington, Uh, California the places that I know best they will look at resumes based on what people have done and who they know and then they'll hire people based on that rather than worrying about what their gender is and so a lot of times you know you'll just say we got a project coming up in a couple weeks you know anyone who's a tech and you know one crew chief I don't know I guess I'll call people so you start texting your friends and stuff and tell them to send in their resume and then they send it all in and they, you know, okay, well, we'll take these five people and here's the crew chief. Thanks for giving me the information. And then the people show up and there's a Native American there and they're almost all women and stuff. And they're just like, okay, here's the mission. Go ahead and go do it. And don't screw up because we don't want to lose money. Yeah. So I th- I think that probably like Alex was saying, the older folks, they're not saying that racist stuff like out, you know, right in front of my face, either because they're, uh, you know, uh, they Treat me differently because I'm a man or because they actually know that they, you know, might get some kind of answer that they don't want to hear if they say that kind of stuff to me or say that kind of stuff to Alex. Uh, But either which way, they'll hold their tongue because all they care about is did you get the job done? Because if you're getting the job done and you're doing cultural resources and uh, as we see with the DAPL pipeline, getting the job done doesn't actually mean doing a good job. It means just doing what the law says. And if you're good at doing that, they don't care if you're a woman most of the time. They don't care if you're a man most of the time. I mean, there are situations where I have seen companies uh, do things that are based on gender lines like not send women to North Dakota man camps because the men who are in those communities you know, aren't necessarily the most savory characters. But uh, I've never seen someone say that a woman can't dig a unit because women are supposed to take care of the artifacts or… You know we need we need a Native American to talk to those Native Americans because they're Native Americans. Like I've never seen that kind of stuff happen at a company or right in front of my face and in
0: the last segment, we were talking about the Society for Black Archaeologists and why it's important to dismantle racism. And uh, now we're back, and Jordan's got a question uh, for us.
1: Um, so I was wondering, so I was talking to my friends and we were talking about how we plan to. I guess, establish our jobs and where we would start in life. But the thing is, um, of course, being an African-American female, I wouldn't know necessarily where to start based off of what opportunities I could and I couldn't have. So my question is, where should I start? Should I start with the Society of Life Archaeology or should I start with CRM? But um, that's just my overall question is where should I start and where should I go from there?
0: That's a great question.
1: Initially, I would say I need to start on um, the undergraduate level. So, joining professional societies, you should definitely be, um, I guess, closely aligned. So, SAA if you're prehistoric, um, or SHA if you're historic, start there. Also, at the AAAs because it's good to get a well rounded view and to also make friends with other anthropologists who are looking at things in your area as well because they give you insights and connections and ne- um, networks that you wouldn't have, otherwise have just working with. Um, archaeologists. So I would always say start there. That's why I tell most of like my undergraduate. The next thing is internships. So before you graduate, if that means working nonprofit, if that means coming to a scream firm and saying if you can come in for a free internship with them in their lab. If that means working with the local society for your state, so Oklahoma has one, Florida has one. I mean just about every state has one. They have it where you can come in, you can do lab nights there, you can excavate with them. So basically you're building up your resume um, to start off, then start looking at larger. Um, One of the things I would highly recommend, especially if you're teetering around the concept of graduate school and whether you want to go in immediately or not, the National Park Service has internship. One of the most competitive and hard to get into, but I definitely recommend and going that route. And if you do a university which has GIS training, take a GIS class. Um, it will benefit you and take you. A, I mean, a long, long, long way because you, you can either go, you can work for an engineering firm with that, you can work in academia with that, you can work in um, state uh, historic preservation offices with that. So that's another option of being able to go directly out of undergrad entry level position. Um, very easily. And the park service also has that transition. Um, once you've established that, of course, take the field, field school already. That needs to be the first thing um, you do upon graduating. That Get a little bit of CRM experience, even if it's not what you want to commit yourself to. It's always good to get that experience um, as well. And then if, if you're thinking about graduate school, you know, go into after you've had that summer of interning or CRM or or um, get to the next level, but I I highly recommend having a specialization in our field. A lot of people go in and just do um, just archaeology or will do historical archaeology, but also come out with a specialization, whether it's um, faunal analysis, whether it's botany, whether it's um, geophysical surveying techniques, GIS. I also say get a specialization as well, because it'll take you a lot further on the job
0: market. I completely agree, Alex. And uh, I might clarify that uh, I was I was given similar advice from my advisor in grad school because I was uh, kind of lost on on what I wanted to do when I first started off. I had come in with this idea that I wanted to study archaic cultures in the central O. Ohio River Valley. And, you know, long story short, I ended up switching paths and going to Portugal. But the advice I got was to specialize, but not on a culture. It was to specialize by beefing up my skill sets and specialize on like environmental analysis or GIS and stuff like that. So I ended up picking up those skills along the way. And Jordan's in a really good position where I think she's ahead of the curve. This is her uh, freshman year of college. Uh, she's in the middle of, and she's already got... Jordan, you've got, what, like four years of, of field school behind you now? I have three years so far. Three years, yeah. So she's been down in Belize working with me um, with the AFAR program on some Maya sites, and uh, she's picked up a lot of skills through that and had a few leadership opportunities. You were you were leading your own excavation unit this past summer and uh, all that, but that's also some incredible advice, uh, Alex, You know, I think by the time you end up going through all that, Jordan, your resume is going to be stacked and just unstoppable.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think I'll finish my PhD in the next few months. So Jordan, if you're looking, I'll work for you. (laughs) (laughs) I think Alex gave some excellent advice Um, and you're fortunate to live in Florida because the uh Florida Public Archaeology Network. They do a lot of great work. The uh University of South Florida, they're great at um training people to do archaeology like for cultural resource management. Uh, so I know that they do uh uh digs, uh I, they collaborate with uh cultural resources companies or at least they used to do C R M there. I don't know if they do anymore, but the folks who teach there still know about that stuff. So they would be great folks to talk to, uh, but I mean, so like you know, you're thinking about your career and everything, but you're pretty young. What what kind of life do you want to have? I mean, I guess that's what you probably should think about most importantly. I mean, you need to know. Are you going to be living out of your uh, truck in the middle of Nebraska? You know, for three months of the year? Are you gonna? You interested in living in motel sixes all across the Midwest? helping pipelines get constructed or you know, do you want to stand in front of a class and teach uh you know uh, lectures do you want to work with kids and help them do public archaeology do you just want to learn like everything that there possibly is about one tiny nuanced thing, thing of uh, you know mayan classical ceramics in one little zone i mean all of those all of those paths are open to you because you're you're just starting off But really, I think a lot of people think about school and what they want to do, but they don't ever think about what kind of life they want to have. So just think for a while before you, you know, commit to any of this stuff, like what kind of life are you thinking that it's going to be like the American dream? Or are you interested in adventure and traveling the world? And if so, like how is uh, your family going to play into that? And how is, you know, having personal relationships going to play into that? I think if you, if you, yeah, it sounds to me like you love doing archaeology. So um, you don't have to actually get paid to do archaeology if you love it. You can be a nurse, or you can uh, you can be a, um, a company president, or you can be a software designer, or anything that you want to do, and just volunteer on digs like you already have done, and still get your archaeology fix. But if you want to do this full time, you know, there's a couple of there's only a few pathways really. You know, cultural resources, or universities, or the government. There's not really like that—that that adventuring rich person gallivanting around the globe. Oh, that—that archaeologist is almost dead now. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> actually, there, there's laws that prevent so gallivanting. So yes, would, no, go ahead. I kind
1: of jump in and correct you. Um, I don't think that—that's actually not true. As far as the only fields in archaeology, and I think my my subsection of people were kind of changing that a little bit. There is an arm of, uh, we have traditionally CRM and academia. You now have a group of nonprofits out here that are doing um, education as well. So it's starting to become more and more of an option. Um, (laughs) And so um, you also have that as a possibility in things to look in. Community archaeology is becoming more and, um, I guess, more important. And we're starting to realize the value in it, where before it was just us, our trial, and outside with the good old dirt. And now we're starting to recognize we can no longer live that way. So and what you want in your life, there are other options um, that are out here. Also, the, even if it's not nonprofit, working with one of the professional organizations, so how the SAA, um, AAA's, SHA, also have education outreach coordinators. They also have uh, people who, if you do love archaeology, but may not want to excavate every day going into membership and marketing, but that still very much deals with our field and how we as professionals deal with each other and working with each other. So I think there are other options. I think traditionally we've only been trained to think of you only have two options when you go into this field versus training more of our students to think outside of the box and that there are more options and you can create your own options.
2: I like it. I like
0: it. Yeah, I do too. I think that that's... Some of the best advice that you could hear is to blaze your own path and to think outside the box.
1: Thank you so much. I actually had one more question I thought of. Um, so, would you suggest going above a graduate degree? Like, would I should I just go ahead and go for a PhD and go as high as I can, so that way I can open up more opportunities for jobs? Or, like, what level should I go to? Uh,
2: well, I mean, it. I think it just depends. Like I said, on lifestyle.
1: Um, varies it, it def, I was going to agree with depends on lifestyle, what you want to do, but also realizing, um, we talked about the uh, SBA also, but realizing that your position in this field, you are an African-American woman. So thinking about that and also keeping that in the back of your mind that you have a stellar resume, but you still are going to have to compete with everybody else. You're still going to have to and everybody else when it comes to certain things. Um, and it's, especially when it comes to competing for research dollars and research. Um, I would say, um, so because of that, I always say more is better. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that when you actually graduate, that won't be an issue. That won't be something that you have to think about. Or, and it can be a total afterthought. But um, I, I'm always a team, um, do more. And I say this to all my students. It doesn't matter their race, um, sex, um, or anything else. Um, I Do your best. Go out and try and achieve as much as you possibly can, but also be smart in how you do it. Doesn't necessarily mean um, we'll, we're you know go go and spend ten years in graduate school if you. Know all you need is a master's degree for whatever you're trying to do with your life. So also be strategic and smart in it, but try to get as much experience as you can.
2: I've got two things to say about that, too. First of all, um, college will never be cheaper than it is today, and there will never be more research money. Well, I don't know. I guess maybe one day there might be more research money. But if you think about how many people who are going to college for their Ph.D. and, and how many departments there are, And how many universities that don't have a PhD department are interested in making one? And how many departments that don't have like a master's, like applied anthro or a public archaeology program, they all want to create these programs, right? The universities only want to get bigger and better. They don't ever want to go back. And in order to fill all those spots, they're going to need graduate students. And in order to do that, they need money, right? They need tuition. They need money from the university. They need grant money. They need a whole bunch of other stuff. So like... If you just look at simple inflation, your degree is going to cost more after you finish your bachelor's like you know a PhD is going to cost more than it would if you started today, right? And if you got out of school and you and you worked for 10 years, it would just cost that much more. Now, that being said, if you did go back to graduate school, a lot of times that's offset by uh, tuition waivers or other grant funding or you know, if you have a if you have skills that you can work a part-time job in archaeology, I mean, that's You can do all that stuff too. But just as a general rule, it'll never be cheaper to go to school than it is today. But on the other hand, though, I feel like if you don't have experience, you're kind of actually going to be in trouble in graduate school because graduate school is the kind of place where not everyone actually finishes and you don't always get a bunch of support. And Alex can tell you, sometimes you end up in unsavory situations where professors are doing stuff that's not so great. Or funding that you thought was going to exist doesn't exist anymore. And now you're like stranded on a desert island somewhere, right? So if you don't have experience or some kind of way to navigate through that as a professional, that's how a lot of people end up in a lot of trouble. If you haven't had to go through all the bureaucracy that's involved with you know, working a job, a professional job. You'll be really um, dismayed when this kind of stuff happens to you in graduate school. And I can tell you it happens to you every semester. So on the one hand, Hmm. you know, you have a financial incentive to go to graduate school immediately as soon as possible to get out so that then you can, you know, it'll cost less. However, if you don't have the experience as a professional, sometimes you can end up in a bad situation. Uh, Sometimes you can end up in a situation with a PhD and no experience and nobody wants you. And so you're back out there digging shovel probes. Or, you know, managing a Starbucks because no one will hire you because you've got a PhD, but you don't have any actual experience. So it's a tightrope that you have to walk and you're really just going to have to decide that based on what kind of life you want. You know, uh, Chris and Alex are exactly right. Blaze your own path, but be aware of, you know, some of this. uh Um, consequences of that. Absolutely.
0: So earlier, you know, we had mentioned some public archaeology and I had wanted to come back around to that. Uh, Bill, I know that you have a a project that you've been going on, which, you know, also comes back to what we had talked about right before the break, which is Blazing Your Own Path. You've been doing a public archaeology project in Boise, Idaho on the River Street project. Could you tell us some about that? The
2: River Street project? Yeah, it's what I'm doing for my dissertation. But also, it was, it was born a long time ago before I, uh, before I went for my PhD out of the fact that uh, this neighborhood, the River Street neighborhood, was the place where all the people who were not considered white were forced to live to, be, before the Civil Rights uh, Act. So all the poor working class whites, all the um, um, European immigrants before they actually learned English and became white, they were forced to live there. Asians, uh, mainly Japanese, because in the city of Boise they ran out the Chinese to another town, uh, and then all the African Americans, and so this neighborhood was just this place that's on the other. It used to be on the other side of this railroad tracks by these warehouses. It was between the river, close to the floodplain, and it was just this uh, district where all the people that they didn't consider white were forced to live until 1969. So uh, you know, as it being a um, uh, multiracial or a black neighborhood or an ethnic neighborhood it 's been slated for uh, development like uh, in the um, like uh, in the '70s, it was called urban renewal. They were going to renew it by just destroying all the homes of the people who live there and newing it with new buildings right now it 's been called uh, redevelopment so it 's targeted for um, economic redevelopment right which still basically means tear down these old houses and build you know condos or whatever uh, and so over the years, houses are continually lost, and the the community really there wasn't any kind of memorial or monument or any kind of uh, this is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city of Boise, and there was no historic district. there's no like uh, there was no um, monument or anything to all the people who lived there over the years. So people from the community that I knew, I grew up in Boise, they were saying, you know you really need to help us out uh, to save something of this neighborhood before it's totally gone. And so I did uh, a lot of archival research. I also, um, for a long time, have been blogging and doing stuff online. And so I realized that the Internet's an awesome way to reach out to people and you can get your message across far and wide uh, without a lot of um, uh, expense. Uh, So I put it all, I created a website, and then I started to lobby um, property owners in the neighborhood to do an archaeology project there. And I was able to get... Uh, the permission and the funding in 2014, we did a public archaeology project that also had a field school. And actually, it was modeled after a lot of the stuff that archaeology in the community does uh, as far as um, a learning opportunity for uh, school students and reaching out to communities to give them a chance to see archaeology um, firsthand. And it worked out really well, and we, um, we were able to uh, identify there was intact archaeological horizons there Um, that dated to the time when it was a multi-ethnic community and we were able to save this house the Irma Heyman house well I mean we didn't save it there was a campaign to save the house that had kind of been stymied because the people who owned the property didn't want their rights infringed by historic preservation after the project and because we were on the news and there was all these like newspaper articles about it and presentations given and thousands of people uh, heard and watched the site and they volunteered and stuff there was A lot more public interest in saving this place and so just i found out in october that the property owners are going to sell that to the city of boise for preservation so they're going to save this african-american woman's house the place that we did archaeology at and then we found some other um, archaeological features that the boise parks and recreation are going to preserve too so it, you know, we, now there's going to be some kind of a monument to the uh, African Americans that lived in this neighborhood, and to the whole neighborhood that will soon be. I mean, they built a brewery across the street right after we were finished uh, digging. It would have been nice for them to finish the brewery while we were still digging, because we were thirsty <laughs> a lot of the days. But yeah. uh, in the process, in the process, they took down two more hundred-year-old homes to build this brewery. And then I was there in October and there's, you know, dozers rolling on a couple more little houses. And so this place is just getting whittled away, but there will be one corner that will be saved uh, for future generations from the
0: project. Well, that's awesome. And I mean, that brings us right around to Alex, you you work with archaeology in the community and... I th- I think this podcast is such a, a funny overlap or like an example of what a small world archaeology can be because I had heard about archaeology in the community through Christy Pritchard who's been a longtime friend and mentor of mine and uh, Jordan and I have worked with her in Belize and um you know and then when I was talking to Bill about setting this podcast up he had talked about you and and said that you were a big role model of his as well and. You know, it's just awesome to have you on this show, but I I would love to hear about archaeology in the community and all of the things that are going on through that.
1: So I basically founded um, archaeology in the community, uh, which we just affectionately just call AITC Um, about nine years ago. Um, and then incorporated it seven years ago when I was a graduate student um, at Berkeley. Um, Basically, what it came out of is one of the cool things about Cal and um, their archaeology program was that they kind of had mandatory archaeology community service built into your degree where you had to do kind of this version of community service every single semester for a credit, uh, which is part of the reason why I picked the department and I loved it because I'm big on community service. Um, but at the same time, um, my first semester, it bothered me. I basically went out, did community service and we went to a school and at the end of the, the session, the teacher was like, Oh, okay, I'll see y'all next semester. And it bothered me because I came from an area where we've never been exposed. Um, To archaeology, we've never had archaeologists to come out. And to be somewhere where it's so prevalent that um, teachers would just automatically say, oh, we'll see you next semester, kind of bothered me. Um, And so I went back to my advisor and was just like, I'm not going to do my (laughs) outreach in California anymore. I'm going to do it in D.C. She kind of laughed at me at first until she realized I was serious. And then she was like, "Okay." And I know in the back of her mind, she was just like, how is this crazy woman really going to do this, but I did. Um, And what actually happened was it became the beginnings of what is now the nonprofit, basically me coming home, doing outreach. Um, And specifically, um, the outreach director at the time, which was Meg Congi, actually funded the very first program, which became our signature um, kind of four-week program that we do now. And I did it. And Basically, it starts to snowball. People heard about it. Um, the African American Museum in Baltimore heard about it, wanted the program. Baltimore City Community College asked if I come out and do an um, archaeology component to their kids in college program. And so it just kind of kept going and kept going to the point where I was like, there's something to this in this area. So Let me incorporate, which is probably the dumbest thing you'll ever do as a graduate student while writing your PhD, I mean, your your dissertation, is to decide to start a nonprofit. But I did. And it it has grown by leaps and bounds. Um, The main focus of our company is doing um, youth programs. So I go into schools in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. So we're a mid-Atlantic regional uh, company and they're completely free. So any teacher can call us at any point and we'll come and do a program for them. Um, I've done worked with rec centers um, to host um, programs. Um, then on top of that, we've started to expand a little bit into the professional development realm. So kind of going to conferences and hearing um, my colleagues complain about our students all the time, Um, And all of the things they don't have, um, I wanted to kind of move beyond that and start professional development. So, we have internships for people who want to get more experience in community archaeology and learning how to work with students and the public. Um, We also have um, different programs. We have a photography archaeology program where graduate students in the area photograph an archaeological site because we figured what better way to get people into archaeology. Then let them come out for a free night to see a photo exhibition. Um, We've kind of grown even larger from that. And our third arm is community um, education. And under community education, this year will be our sixth year hosting an archaeology festival. Um, Last year we had over 500 people come out. We had 37 archaeology organizations representing from DC, Maryland, and Virginia, including museums, um, CRM firms, and um, federal and state government um, wow. agencies all represented at the festival and it is just that so we have music face painters um, everybody has activities for kids and adults and it's all around archaeology um, we also have what I like to spend our fun adult programs and as archaeologists we often complain how do we get more people into it so we've kind of pushed the envelope of thinking of crazy fun ways so um, we have a program coming up with art and um, wine, so it's a sip and create. And the idea is to teach people about art and how art is artifacts and reflections of people and how that mixes with archeology. span And they actually create a piece which represents them. So we say, if people were to find this piece years later, what would it tell us, about you? and How are you gonna represent yourself through um, material remains? Like, how are you gonna do this? And we embed it in uh, concrete. And of course, give them wine. get the juices flowing yeah Um, we also have an instagram account we have a show called the dig where we go around and film different archaeological sites so people can learn about archaeological sites in five minutes and this is a way of giving publicity to other um, archaeologists and sites so it can help beef up people coming to see them or wanting to learn more about them yeah we we have a slew of programs um that we do in addition to that we are international um, we will be working again in February in Belize, working with the Institute of Archaeology there and the State Department, where we're going around teaching kids about archaeology in various communities in Belize. Um, this will be our third year doing that. Um, we are um, or have been approached by a couple other um, islands as well to do programs um, for their youth. So we're pretty busy. We kind of do a little bit of everything. But again, our main focus is youth education, you know, professional development and kind of community programs and just really getting people excited about archaeology in a new and innovative way that we've never tried before.
0: That is awesome. Yeah, I want that in my community. I, I want, do you want to open a branch in uh, Portland? Hey,
1: I, well, no. I actually live in Portland. <laughs> so I worked for OPB for um, a year. Oh, so that's nice. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. I would be open to a West Coast division.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've asked her many times to do a West Coast division. It's a possibility.
1: 2018, 2018.
0: We've been trying to get Bill to move out to Portland too. (laughs) I don't think my mustache is big enough for Portland. It can get there. You've got the beard going on.
2: I I need the the humidity or whatever's in the air there uh, in Portland to help my beard grow and you know (laughs) sculpt it into its uh, (laughs)
0: Leonidas-like.
2: Full development.
0: Yep, it's mandatory. Well, um, (laughs) I think that's about all I have for uh, this episode. Do you all have anything else that you'd like to uh, comment on or talk about? Well,
2: the only thing I want to say before we close up is I want to thank Jordan for having us all uh, here to talk about this. Because when I started my undergrad in Boise, Idaho, I definitely didn't have any black archaeologists to talk to. Uh, And then when I went for my... uh, Masters at the University of Idaho. I didn't have any black archaeologists to talk to, and here at the University of Arizona, I still don't have any black archaeologists to talk to. So, uh, having someone that I can talk with, you know, it really actually um, makes me feel good that now there are black archaeologists that other students can talk to.
1: Yeah, I think I think this is an awesome platform. I, I mean, and to kind of say what Bill said, you know, being there, having gone through that. um, But I would like to publicly throw out for anybody interested, if anybody is interested in public or community archaeology um, and would like advice or help on, Um, please feel free to contact archaeology in the community. I mean, that's what the mission of the company is, um, kind of getting us out there and um, letting people know that you know, archaeologists come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, we aren't Indiana Jones anymore. Um, and so kind of, you know, we all do different things. And archaeology isn't just digging in the dirt anymore. So, you know, I would like to put that offer out that if anybody's interested in exploring kind of the different innovative, funky ways of getting archaeology to people, um, please feel free to contact AITC.
0: Yeah, definitely. And even though we are not Indiana Jones, we, we do have a Dr. Jones on the, on the podcast today, but, uh, I'll have links and contact information in the show notes. You know, Alex, Bill, Jordan, thank you so much for joining the podcast and, uh, As always, I'm looking forward to talking to you all soon. All
1: right. All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This has been your host, Chris Sims. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, coworkers, uh, anybody who you think could get something useful out of this episode if you have any ideas for episodes please reach out on social media Uh, you can tag me at go dig a hole on uh twitter instagram Uh, we also have a facebook page that's monitored by all of our hosts and you can look forward to more new episodes coming soon with uh katie tia and kirsten and i'll also be digging back even deeper into the archives for more of the older episodes. If you dig the music for this podcast, you can check out the band Invaders on Bandcamp. The song is called Dig a Hole off of their album, also called Dig a Hole. And special thanks to our friend JC Dennison for giving us permission to use that.